Welcome to Rise to Offend, a podcast that explores people who rose to offend in society and their legacy today. I am your host, Jocelyn Sharp, and this week we are discussing TriStar's 1984 controversial Santa slasher, Silent Night, Deadly Night, a film that caused critics and parents to revolt against a major Hollywood studio and create a discussion on what is sacred for America. Given the sensitivities that have surfaced, I would prefer that it not be released anymore until after the Christmas holidays but it be no longer associated with Christmas as a Christmas release, and let it be re-released domestic theatrical as, as what it is, a kind of a send-up of a holiday after the fact. Much of the controversy over the film surfaced when parents saw TV ads they found objectionable. Barmack says he was against that advertising strategy from the beginning. It is possible that kids who did not hear the disclaimers would have seen Santa Claus, a summon dressed as Santa Claus, in the context of something frightening. There is no way to defend that. There is no way to justify it. I can only tell you as a historical fact, I was against advertising this on television. Though Barmack hopes to put the film back in theaters early next year, he concedes it's not a film for everyone. I think it will always be a battle between the people who understand why this picture is a send-up and those who on the face of it are going to be offended by it. And I would urge the people who don't who have the slightest sensitivity on the subject, don't see it. Trade paper reports today say Barmack will try to release Silent Night, Deadly Night on the West Coast before Christmas, but Barmack told us he doesn't think he has enough time to do that. He also refused to detail specific terms of his deal with TriStar. Joining me this week, as always, is Petter Speich and Brandon Hahn. The term B-movie was created in Hollywood for lesser than opening acts in Hollywood cinema. So during double features, there would be a cheaply made B-movie playing prior to the A-film. The term B-movie has lost a little bit of its original meaning over the years, and it's come to mean just a low-budget film. Originally, it meant something very specific. Uh, these were... Movies designed to be shown on the lower half of double bills, mostly in the 30s and 40s when this system evolved, uh, running about an hour with no stars, and they're meant to be sold to the theaters on the basis of a flat rental fee rather than a percentage of the gross, which meant that a lot of the smaller theaters, small town theaters that couldn't afford the big studio films would take movies from the so-called Poverty Row Studios. Uh, of which Republic was the littlest giant. B-movies weren't profitable and were seen as films that were admittedly poor quality and would not make the cut for something that could be advertised or sold, but therefore it would be shown prior to a more marketable film. Today, when people talk about B-movies, they're mainly talking about cheap horror films from the 60s and 70s. The killers are eating the flesh of the people they murder. Which has nothing to do with this. These films, the Republic films, the Poverty Row films, were operating on a Hollywood aesthetic, but doing it on the cheap. So not a lot of retakes, not a lot of big sets, not a lot of elaborate camera movements, knowing what kind of stories you can tell on a low budget and what kind of stories you can't. You know, a lot of ingenuity required, and we can appreciate a film like Storm Over Lisbon. It almost looks like a big budget picture. It almost seems to have major stars in it, but none of this is true. Storm Over Lisbon is Republic's attempt to cash in on Casablanca. The way cinema was created, B-movies were accidental and greenlit films that turned out to be bad. Studios who wanted to have the reputation of only putting out great award-worthy projects would salvage these films in this way. And while it doesn't exactly imitate the film scene for scene, it hits all of the major beats, all of the major plot points, all of the major character profiles, but does so in a republic way. 
and in this case does with a great sense of humor because the director, George Sherman, was very conscious of what was going on there. And instead of Humphrey Bogart, we had Richard Arlen. Instead of Ingrid Bergman, we would have Vera Huber Ralston, who was a Czech ice skating champion who had been imported to Hollywood. And there are moments in Storm Over Lisbon where she is called upon to emote on the same level as Ingrid Bergman in Casablanca. And George Sherman very wisely has her turn her back to the camera so we can't see just how frozen in face her expression is. I was told to put it there, but I don't always do what I'm told. I know enough about you, Greg, not to want anything. When the studio and creator label your film lesser than, how does that have any appeal to audiences in the mainstream? Well, the whole thing is that when you want to be great at art, when you want to be like, I have to reach a certain standard, that's going to be like an Academy Award standard or something like that. There's got to be things that are misfires and that you put money into it. What do you do with it? Back in the day, there wasn't VHS copies. There wasn't, I can do a direct-to-video. You have to somehow salvage that and make money. So the accidental, supposed-to-be-good, bad film just screams awesome to me. Woody! You out there? Woody! Kitty, kitty, kitty! Kitty! Where'd she go? Okay. You're on your own until morning. Merry Christmas. There you are, you bad kid. Punish! 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 I think I know what you're talking about. You like the idea of people taking a chance. That's what happens. You take a big chance, you swing big, and unfortunately, when you swing big, you can also miss big, and that's usually what ends up happening with a lot of these B-movies. And with that, it's still entertaining. That's So right. it's like, wow, that was so bad, but you here's the thing about so bad that it's entertaining is that when it's so bad and it's entertaining... You connect with another human being like, what the fuck did we just watch? But even though when you are trying to put out a movie and all of a sudden people only like it because it's so bad. Now, what does that say about you? Are you pissed off at the same time? You're like, what you? So now I'm a joke to you. So now this thing I put in countless hours into is, is laughable to you. No computers back then. We had to, and no computer tracking cameras. So we had to do everything in such a way that, uh, that it would fit together. Right. Uh, so that wasn't scripted, the famous Antler scene. No, right, no, and uh, not at all, uh, and uh, I think he was supposed to, if I remember correct, kill her with an axe. Uh, uh, we ended up with him throwing the axe and missing her, right. and then he grabs her and, and hangs her on the antlers. Uh, but, uh, uh, so then the special effects guy said, look, uh, we won't be able to get this tonight, but let me make a styrofoam torso, and we'll go to some cuts of the antlers popping through her body in, in a tight shot. And uh, so uh, we filmed it in a combination, you know, a lot of coverage. Uh, a, a number. So we're on the wall, and then we're on her face, and then we're on the lift. 
and, and then we can cut back to the master, which fits it all together, and see him lift, the, see the antler, see him lifting her and moving towards it. Uh, then we go back to the, to the shadow as he's pushing her onto the antlers. And what caused that to work, see, is the antlers are actually to the left of the actors. So, so the, the, the actors go against the wall but you've got the shadow of the of the antlers beside them, and so they interrupt the, the shadow of the antlers, and it looks like he puts her on it. Right, right. Uh, then, a couple of nights later, we shot the inserts with the styrofoam stuff, and of course, when we cut it together, uh, you, you see what you see. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the whole uh, film was made for $750,000. And... Uh, uh, with the kind of special effects we had in it, with the night shooting, with all the stuff uh, in the 80s, I, I thought this was pretty incredible at the time. I still think it is today. Right. I'm going to say there's an art form to the B-movie. It's got to be so bad it's good that it's laughable, but if it's like borderline just bad and not laughable, I think that that's where you get pissed off. But I think it took... <laughs> I, but I don't think the B-movie love affair, like you and I are talking about, yes. I don't think that took off until well after... Correct. Like years, it was like a whole decade of like B-movies that thought they could be A-movies. You needed people like Ed Wood Jr. Right. That had no fucking clue, but someone gave him a paycheck. You're completely right. Santa Claus! Looks like you get to see him tonight after all, Billy. No, Daddy, I don't want to see him. Keep going, don't stop! Need a ride, Santa Claus? Oh, no, not exactly. What's the problem? Oh, there's no problem. It's just that I ran into a little bit of lousy luck. value of these lesser films started to gain notice, and despite the poor product in films, audiences started to embrace these B-films for their awful premise and sheer fact that someone greenlit them to be created. It's kind of big because I went on so many auditions and got turned down so many times, and I went on this one, and probably one of the, the things that they wanted was a girl that was lightweight because they had to lift her up so many times doing the the antlers scene yeah so i think you know my acting and then also being of slight build i got the part so i was i was really happy i didn't think it would be this outrageous movie that mothers heckled and and everything and yeah. that it would be such a hit and it'd be one and two and three and four and five and six of them. <laughs> I was really shocked about that. Major studios had a lock on the quality in the steak dinner when it came to films, but independent producers started to realize there is a profit in making donuts instead of steak dinners and cheaply would start to invest in this product and profits would be overwhelming. Well, I would still like to have those freedoms, but the, the styles, I guess I'm talking about of the forties, the types of movies they made and the types of situations it seems to me that films have been kind of ruined by television and by commercials especially. In the 60s, there were, people just went crazy and, and forgot about form, said to hell with it. You know, we don't need a lot of structure here. And it's gotten so to the point now that when you devise a film that, that in style is a bit old-fashioned and has a lot of dolly shots and the lighting is molded and is three-dimensional, and 
people say, well, it's phony. Mm, I don't think so. I think it's just a different style. And I'm sorry to see that style go, as it was rich with a lot of textures. And I think that's probably what I'm responding to when I say I'd like the clock to stop. B-movies would show females in a desirable and sleazy fashion and embrace evil and anti-heroes throughout. Film noir would be the most popular genre prior to the sci-fi movement. Horror films and anything deemed sleazy would get the B-movie label and start to get greenlit. But major studios would not participate. But there's no question in my mind that the showing of Santa with an axe on free TV and commercials is sick and sleazy and mean-spirited. So let's repeat the names of the people who did it. <laughs> TriStar Pictures, co-owned by Columbia Pictures, CBS, and Home Box Office. Shame on you. The reputation of the product and the art from major studios always went against putting out product for easy profits. Their goals were to be classy and the best. The demand from the youth, though, throughout the 70s was not for steak. It was for donuts. And at this stage in film, talented filmmakers started to create these B-movies. Now, as for the film, I've got news for you. It's worse than the TV ads. Telling a typical mad slasher story about a boy who witnesses his father being shot and his mother being stabbed to death by a maniac in a Santa Claus suit. So now the traumatized kid grows up and is asked to work in a, in a toy store as Santa one Christmas, and it freaks him out. He impales one naked girl on a set of antlers, there's another woman with a bow and arrow, and another with a knife, and yet we even see Santa give one little girl a bloody knife as a gift and threaten another little girl with physical punishment as he sits on his lap. You might think that it would be funny, Roger, or Perry... It's played as quite thick in the film. Inspired by the Italian giallo films of the 1960s like Blood and Black Lace, the studio started to take notice, and horror films were becoming more and more profitable in drive-ins and American cinema. Maledetto assassino! Maledetto! Confessa, sei tu l'assassino! Ispettore, lo faccio visitare! È un impotente! Ah, no! Per questo odia le donne! Le ucciderebbe tutte perché non può averne nemmeno una! Why do you feel audiences started to desire the sex and violence that cinema shows in the 1970s? If we go to a film like you just mentioned, Blood and Black Lace, it is a a really well-made film, but the emotions that you're hearing or the acting that you're seeing, it's, it's, it's all about what the filmmaker is making you feel. And so it is... In a way, you can call it sleazy because it's based on murder. It's based on, you know, beautiful women all over the place. So sex appeal, yeah. Sex appeal, exactly. So I can see why people would consider them lesser than, but the fact of the matter is, is that Hollywood just considered the content lesser than because what were they selling us? Sex appeal? Classy sex appeal. Just not trashy sex appeal. But what's the big difference, right? It was in 1963 that cinematographer-turned-director Mario Bava created what would be known as the first giallo film. The Girl Who Knew Too Much, its title a reference to a film Hitchcock made not once, but twice, set the structural formula for many future gialli. In it, a murder witness, disregarded by authority, must attempt to solve the murder or risk being killed herself. Although a financial failure, later looked upon negatively by Baba himself, the film set a trend he would soon follow. The financial success of his anthology horror film Black Sabbath allowed Baba complete creative control over 1964's Blood and Black Lace. Known in Italy as Six Women for the Murderer, the picture further defined the giallo genre. 
Stylishly shot, the film follows a group of fashion models who, one by one, are murdered by a mysterious mass killer. Despite being a commercial failure, the film remains one of the most influential films of the genre. It wasn't until 1970 that the giallo genre saw box office success as well as cultural acclaim. A lot of people don't want to admit they like sleazy, but let's face it, we all do. There's a reason why uh, a There's movie, a mindlessness to it, right? Th- exactly, that's what I'm saying. It's like when you go watch some of these dumb action flicks, when you go watch, you know... The canon films of the 80s. Right, yeah. yeah. You're, you're just kind of like, oh, okay. Like the, you go watch some of the movies in the 80s, uh, like Commando, Arnold Schwarzenegger is holding a guy out by his leg over a cliff with one arm. That's not even humanly possible, but but the thing is, though, is we all love that scene. And there's something about just kind of giving in to people's uh, inner demons, I guess, or just inner giving in to people's vices almost. So what exactly defines a giallo picture? One of the most frequent traits in giallo is the presence of violent, at times over-the-top, murder scenes, often involving copious amounts of blood. These murders are usually performed by a shadowy, leather-gloved killer, sometimes hidden beneath a mask, whose victims are normally scantily clad or nude women. The giallo hero is typically an outsider, such as a tourist, who finds themselves witness to the killer's acts. Many films express an emphasis on psychology, through the protagonist's paranoia and fear, or the madness of the antagonist. Visually, many gialli, most notably those of Vava and Argento, place an importance on colorful lighting. Featuring surreal camera work, gialli films often utilize close-ups to show action while hiding the identity of their killers. These close-ups frequently focus on murder weapons, clues, or psychologically significant objects. In some moments, the camera functions as a point of view building suspense by putting the audience behind the eyes of the assailing villain. To watch vices that you can't... Like you said, it's a fantasy world, more or less. When you watch a film like Death Wish with Charles Bronson and his family gets you know attacked and he just kills all the people, you're like, God damn, that's awesome. I want to be that way. But that's not reality. Reality is you got to get cops involved. Reality, there's a court process. And they didn't want that. They didn't want that. They just wanted to cut to the chase. They just wanted to be like, kill that motherfucker and get away with it. You're the good guy, Charles Bronson. Who'd be out here this time of the night on Christmas Eve? Go on. Be quiet for a minute. I feel like somebody's watching me. Like who? Santa's little elves? Well, maybe it was just my imagination. Yeah, it would be if you had one. Now ride your stupid sled. My sled ain't stupid. I'll show you. Watch. Well, if it isn't Bob and Matt. Now, why don't you guys just get the fuck out of the way? Glad to, little man. But, uh, we're gonna go sledding. Oh, that's the plan. You guys are gonna take our sleds. Oh, you guys are great. You know, I wanna grow up to be just like you. Ugly and very stupid. You want to take that back? Fuck face. Drop dead. I said take it back. All right. All right. I'm sorry. Now get out of here. Now watch this. What? 
American filmmaker John Carpenter would be viewed by many as the first auteur of American B-movies. And as the label of exploitation cinema was now tied to this movement, people were buying into the sleaze. What does that mean? They're not afraid to die. Any of them. They want to rip us apart, no matter what it costs. It means to the death. Precinct 13. Cut off. Isolated in the middle of a city, as a human wave of street killers turns the night into a nightmare. We got a war going on down here. We can't find the damn thing. A white-hot night of hate. Assault on Precinct 13. Indie producers would now start breaking barriers to scare audiences and holidays would be a target. Bob Clark, the future director of the timeless holiday classic A Christmas Story, would be one of the first to successfully put together this taboo thing with the 1974 film Black Christmas. Remember those idyllic scenes out of your childhood? Crisp winter nights, star bright, sleigh bells, crackling yule logs, candlelight glistening off of shimmering Christmas trees, Chestnuts roasting over open fires, carolers beneath snow-covered window ledges. Remember those. Remember them well. After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. Black Christmas, starring Olivia Hussey, Keir Dulay, Margot Kidder, and starring John Saxon as Lieutenant Fuller. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. The film was an underground success for critics and fans, breaking him into the Hollywood system and would have him start to direct A-list movies. But he would not get the credit for being the director that changed the cinema snob mentality. That honor would go to John Carpenter. What I hate worse than anything else is pretension in any form. Somebody who's pretentious and is delivering a message. Because I don't think film motion pictures is at all intellectual. I think it's all feelings. People laughing, crying, screaming, etc. Getting excited, getting upset, whatever. And when there's a message to it, I, it just, it's not my kind of movie. Would you not say there's some kind of a message going on in, in Dark Star or in Assault? I perhaps, it's not my intention though. The intention is to entertain. And I think anything good has a substance or a theme to it. A thematic material is different than a message. Pe people who deliver a message is like a public service broadcast or a commercial. This is what I believe and you must believe this too. I think any great work has a theme though. And the theme can be discerned from a message in that it's not hitting you over the head or stating something but it's a little more subtle. He would get critical acclaim for films like Assault on Precinct 13. But nothing truly broke through the mainstream and reached acceptance until the groundbreaking independent and box office smash Halloween in 1978. In other words, you're saying that you actually do quite like ideas, but you, oh, don't, want, you don't want them to be paramount. Well, I don't think they can be because first and foremost, I think, in my opinion, that films are to entertain to be entertained and to feel. And it's through the feelings that you get from watching a film that you're going to derive the theme and the importance of the movie. What about your contemporaries, Lucas, Spielberg, De Palma? I don't care for them. Any of them? I think George Lucas made a good film, American Graffiti. Very good. I think uh, Steven Spielberg, Jaws was good. But 
They made a lot of money. I think you would like the clock to have stopped at about 1948, wouldn't you? That would be fun. That was when I was born, but I, I liked old. I like old-fashioned movies. Red River or something. Yeah. Red River would be fine. I. You could go up into the 60s, but. Uh, you go as far as Rio Bravo, perhaps. I can go up to El Dorado and maybe stop there. <laughs> not, not uh, Lobo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I could imagine a director from the 40s uh, looking forward to the 70s and thinking, my God, if only I had the freedom that John Carpenter has to write, direct produce, edit, write his own music. Oh, perhaps so. Perhaps so. I hadn't thought of it that way. What did John Carpenter's Halloween do to change B-movies to A-movies? So as, we, as you were talking about, the art tour is the writer-director, the guy that's like, this is fully mine, right? And John Carpenter was, was, was an action guy. Assault on Precinct 13th was an action film, but it was... B-movie all the way. If anybody's ever seen it, there's a scene where a little girl walks up to get ice cream from an ice cream truck and gets blown away by the guy. A little girl. Like, nine-year-old little blonde girl gets shot three times. Now, and Carpenter, was she talking shit? No. She was trying to get, like, a snow cone. (laughs) Hey. This is regular vanilla. I want a vanilla twist. That shit was like, what the fuck, all right? And, and that was John Carpenter. He was an action guy that would push it forward. When you talk about Bob Clark, who did direct A Christmas Story, who everybody has probably seen out there, he was the guy behind Black Christmas. But again, he wasn't an auteur. He wasn't considered someone that writes, directs, and does the whole thing. Carpenter was always that way. And Carpenter, although you can look at him later as someone that entered the studio system, he never really changed his approach, you know? So... Looking back on someone like him, being the forefather of changing B-movies to A-movies is a fair assessment. Halloween night. A small American town. Fifteen years ago. Halloween. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Halloween isn't seen as the first slasher film that came out in 1978, but the film was everything that made horror films what they were all through the 80s until people were done with slasher films, you know? He was kind of the guy that that changed all that before entering the studio system. And also, the film was a huge box office hit. So Halloween, I think, is one of the most important horror films, but also one of the most important, quote-unquote, B-films ever made. I think he'll come back. Exploring uncharted territory. And totally charted. And just talk. Sure, sure. sure. The only reason she babysits is to have a Halloween. 
Come on out. I think it might be just one of the most important films because how many other movies did that spawn? That whole idea. You know, the, the idea of one guy you can't kill and he's just going around hacking up everybody. And the, the one thing with John Carpenter, too, like you were bringing up the, the girl with the ice cream cone, it starts off with Michael Myers as a kid murdering his family. So it's like all of a sudden you're he's putting this imagery into the people's head where, wait a minute, this was something that was thought of as innocent. Now all of a sudden it's dangerous. And again, all, all of this, Michael, is just is the unfolding, some people would say, of the backstory leading to him, his rampage, really, right? Well, I don't, yeah, I guess I don't know the definition of backstory. To me, it's the story. It's the, the only thing that matters. What else would you, I mean, the victims are irrelevant. The thing about concentrating on the victims is they're ordinary people. There's nothing inherently interesting about them. Mm -hmm. Billy, on the other hand, has a story. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And in the Giallo films, the Italian Giallo films of the 60s, like we were talking about, those films, you never saw the killer until the very end or close to the end. You didn't know who was killing people. Right. And we knew Michael Myers as a kid killing people, and we're just going to follow him. It was a completely different thing. And then at the very end of the movie, they take his mask off, and I mean, you see Michael Myers' face for like a split second, and that was it. Yeah. And Jamie Lee Curtis was a babe. Oh, <laughs> let, us, let us all give a moment of silence for Jamie Lee Curtis. Stop. Please stop it. What's the matter with you? Please. Stop it. Please stop it. What's the matter with you? Stop it. Stop kicking. Do you have any idea what you're doing? You're being naughty. Right on Santa's lap. I don't bring toys to naughty children. I punish them. Severely. That's right. Stop it. Or I'll have to punish you. He sure knows how to handle kids. He's great, isn't he? I, th I think that's also notable to understand that one of the things that the horror genre understands that most genres of film still haven't understood is that if you play to your fans, you will make money. And in 2019, one of the only genres that's still making good money on the regular with purchases is horror. And, the, and this was the beginning of it is because what John Carpenter showed was if I give horror fans what they want to see, they will buy into the product. You are totally right because nobody is more... 
loving of a movie and nobody is more nobody viciously attacks a movie in their particular genre more than horror fans like horror fans will be like this is the greatest movie ever you're crazy but if there's a horror movie that somebody tells them is scary and they go see it and they're not scared they are fucking pissed this was the reality for many families across america during 1984 it left parents outraged and children potentially traumatized the trailer alone struck a chord with parents unlike past slasher movies that chord being Old Saint Nick. Santa Claus was an untouched, pure character, up until this point, that children everywhere could trust. And after seeing an advertisement for a film about a killer Santa Claus, parents mobilized. Parents called into TV stations to complain about the ad. At the film's premiere at the Interboro Quad Theater in the Bronx, PTA members joined protesters by picketing the theater and singing Christmas carols. At another theater in Milwaukee, which was perhaps the loudest to protest, a group known as Citizens Against Movie Madness picketed with signs that read Save Santa and Santa's Not a Murderer. There's also no limitations to horror films. However, fans' expectations put limitations on the genre. Yes. That's always been a thing. So I think with Halloween, he did break expectations. He had somebody that was like, hey, I really, really enjoyed, uh, I don't know, whatever the best picture was of that year. Watch Halloween and be like, wow. That worked. He did something feasible for both audiences, which nobody did until then. Grandpa? Mom! What do you want her for? She can't help you? Nobody can. You're scared, ain't you? You should be. Christmas Eve. It's the scariest damn night of the year. I'd be scared too, if I was you. You know what happens Christmas Eve, don't you? You know all about Santa Claus. He brings presents to all good boys and girls. <laughs> Your daddy told you that, didn't he? Well, I tell you something. Santa Claus only brings presents to them that's been good all year. To the ones that ain't done nothing naughty, naughty. All the other ones, all the naughty ones, he punishes. What about you, boy? You've been good all year? You see Santa Claus tonight? You better run, boy. You better run for your life. Major studios would take notice, and the slasher film genre of hot teenagers getting murdered because they want premarital sex would be a hot commodity in Hollywood. Sinners allowing the devil into their life would be considered sleazy, but also relatable. And Paramount Pictures, a major movie studio, would break this format of A movies and B movies with the release of the godfather of slasher movies in 1980, Friday the 13th. Thank <laughs> you. 
Hello? Who's that? Oh, hi. What are you doing out in this mess? The film cost $500,000 to make and would gross $60 million, something studios could not ignore. 11. <laughs> 12. Friday, the 13th. You may only see it once, but that will be enough. Friday, the 13th. Audiences dictate what is put out in cinema. After a major studio released and marketed a film like Friday the 13th to a massive financial excess, what effect did that have on the world of cinema? It changed it all because it wasn't just profitable. It was a blockbuster, right? And Friday the 13th, is the godfather of the slasher film. Although a lot of people can look back on Halloween and be like, well, that's a slasher film. No. Friday the 13th is the one that was mimicked. Friday the 13th is a film that I think every subgenre or whatever of the filmmaking prowess, that was the film, the Sean S. Cunningham one, that created a mainstream genre out of it. I think the idea for Friday the 13th was spawned from Halloween. It may not have been your classic slasher film, but it featured one guy that was in the first one. It wasn't a guy, but I'm just saying, but it's like, but it featured just one person going on and just taking out everybody but in I, the most vicious of ways. As, hey, Scott. Yeah. We just saw a credit that said based on a story by Paul K. I mean, yeah, Kami. Yeah, I prefer to mispronounce it. <laughs> uh, what did Paul K. I mean have to do with the story, as well, you recall? Paul Kamey was a, a, a young guy at the time who wrote a, a script called He Sees You When You're Sleeping as a college grad, as a college guy. He was a senior in college, and he sent it to me, and it was it was awful. But I love the one-sentence idea of a psycho Santa on the loose, and we ended up optioning it from Paul Kamey. But, and then we hired you, of course, to come up with a completely new scenario, new characters, a whole new setting— I never met him or spoke to him or read anything that he had written, Did but you read his treatment. Uh, did any of what he wrote survive into the movie? No, there's, well, it was a screenplay, sort of barely. It was about 72 pages, and there is nothing in the finished film of Silent Night, Deadly Night, uh, which you wrote. 
which uh, originated in Paul Kami's material, other than a guy in a Santa suit who was a killer. That's it. Hadn't Christmas Evil predated Silent Night? I'm not sure whether Black Christmas did. Black Christmas. Yeah, Black is, Christmas. Is did. that a Santa slasher? It's set in a fraternity house, and it's at Christmas time. I don't. I haven't seen it in years. Oh, so the Santa slasher idea might have been original with uh, Paul. No, there was a Tales from the Dark Side that had a Santa character in it, actually. I just have to say, as a horror nerd, the reason that Halloween technically isn't the godfather of slasher films is that it's about a villain and a victim's relationship. Friday the 13th is about a mindless killer. Like, there is a relationship between the killer and the victim in Halloween. In Friday the 13th, it's slash, slash, slash. That's what a slasher is. Yes, and and Friday the 13th, in fairness, as we are talking about those Italian giallo films, you didn't know who the killer was until the end. I know everybody out there, if you haven't seen it, you're like, oh, it's Jason. No, no, you don't no, and I'm, we're not going to spoiler you guys, but the point is... <laughs> oh my is, God, if you don't know who the first killer mom. was on Friday the 13th, Jesus. At the end of Titanic, dude, you'll never guess what happens. The influence of Giallo is most notable in the American-made slasher films of the late 70s and 80s. The use of POV camera angles, the emphasis on violence, the mass killers, the gradually increasing body count, the predominantly female victims, the frequent nudity, all are found in both genres. In fact, two death scenes from Friday the 13th Part 2 were stolen straight out of Bava's 1971 film, A Bay of Blood. That same year, an extremely little scene film called Christmas Evil would be made and eventually would be bought by Trauma Team Video because of its cult following. And the kids. Christmas Evil. The non-believers. <laughs> And the screamers. And this Christmas, you better believe in Santa, or he'll slay you. Merry Christmas, Frank. Christmas Evil, the night he dropped in. Slasher films were now being produced at insane rates as indie producers and major studios were trying to make profits off this trend. Indie producers would start to pump out slasher films at a feverish pace, and as major studios stayed behind the trend, they would start to take notice. Paramount would start producing Friday the 13th sequels on a yearly basis. 23. Count on for terror is not over. Friday the 13th, part two. And this series would be the only mainstream studio putting out B-movies, masking them as A-movies, but this would change in 1984 when other studios started to produce major B-movies. I didn't uh, even think that people would think that it was actually Santa Claus doing this, and that certainly wasn't the storyline when I was doing it. I have seen the show uh, only twice. You know how it is. You you shoot a show and you edit it, and by the time uh, you put it through the dubbing process, you've seen the show 50,000 times. And uh, you don't care if you ever see it again in your whole life. Uh, And I've seen the show twice since 82. And 
uh, you have to understand I've gotten older and wiser and uh, and I regret uh, uh, having uh, uh, done a slasher film just because I'm older and wiser and, uh, uh, and, and my, my life has changed and my perspective has changed and the things I want to work on has changed. But uh, my memory was it was rated R, and I don't think kids could have seen it anyway right. uh, at the time. Why did major studios ignore the profits of horror films for many years? I just think they didn't want to look at the ugly truth that they were making a buck off low-grade entertainment. They just, because again, like what Pete was saying earlier in the episode, you know, the, the idea of being upscale, the idea of being classy was everybody still wanted, uh, you know, star power. They wanted, the, they, wanted the, they, they were still attached to the Humphrey Bogart mm-hmm. days. They were still attached to the uh, Greta Garbo days, you know, but now it's like, it's all about making money. And it took a little bit for the studios to go, well, look, if we put out this piece of shit B movie, it's not going to break down our whole reputation. The film's producer, Ira Barmack, told People Magazine, people have taken offense at Santa being used in a scary context. Santa Claus is not a religious figure. He's a mythic character. I didn't deliberately ride roughshod over the sensitivity, and I didn't anticipate the objection to it. Yeah, and when you brought up Christmas Evil, that film from 1980, that was so, like, so few people saw it. The film was just so underground, Christmas Evil. You couldn't, it didn't make profit. It wasn't something that people would notice. And when it's underground, just like anything that people considered sleazy, it didn't matter. It only mattered. Punk rock only mattered when it became mainstream. And that's the deal. That's like, it. it. It only mattered when they got the advertising behind when it. When the kids can see it. Yeah. yeah. If, it's, if it's like, hey, I got to go to a sleazy theater. It's rated R. My kids can't get in there. But that's what I'm getting it at. It doesn't like, matter. Where are you going to be able to see an advertisement for Christmas Evil? You're Most not. people didn't even know it existed. Yeah. It wasn't even called that at first. It was called You Better Watch Out. or uh, And then it was called Terror in Toyland. And then eventually, Troma picked it up. I think that's when it was called Christmas Eve. And... Uh, <laughs> I have about, in fact, I have about literally right at my desk now uh, about 50 articles uh, from different newspapers all around the country uh, about uh, following the release of the film and the controversy which surrounded it and some of the quotes that the parents say about the film. And and, uh, certainly I never saw that coming. Uh, I'm sure Ira never saw it coming and obviously uh, TriStar never saw it coming. Uh, it uh, and uh, after Friday Thirteenth and uh, I mean by then it was like the fifth or more and of that type. With the understanding that audiences were used to horror films at this stage, despite that they were catered strictly to the youth and underground cinema circuits, TriStar Pictures would greenlight a film that would make quick profits of this trend, and it would break away from the A-movie mentality. I knew it from the get-go it was going to get an enormous amount of criticism. That was in the car, no question about it, and it did. In November 1984, during a Saturday afternoon Green Bay Packers football game, TriStar Pictures ran an ad for its new horror film, Silent Night, Deadly Night, with the tagline, You've made it through Halloween, now try and survive through Christmas. The ad depicted an axe-wielding Santa Claus and a few of Santa's screaming victims. the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care. 
in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. like Black Christmas and to a much lesser extent Christmas Evil were received well, was there any concern with Silent Night, Deadly Night being released? I would say no. I would say that if you were TriStar Pictures and Friday the 13th was out, I would think, like, all right, we're just going to make a slasher movie about Santa Claus. They did one about New Year's Eve. They did one about April's Fool's Day. They did one about yada, yada. They did about all of them. Halloween, you know, you can look back on. So it's like, all right, what what have we not done? Let's do Santa Claus. I understand the controversy from a mother's point of view, from a parent's point of view. They showed ads for the movie like a week before, 10 days before it opened, on Sunday afternoon when the whole family in the Midwest is around watching the Green Bay Packer football game. Mom, Dad, little Johnny, little Amy, you know, they're all watching the game. And there's the, there's the trailer, you know, in, 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 a, in a commercial for Silent Night, Deadly Night. You know, with the, with the narrator, he knows when you've been naughty. You see Santa's hands grab for an axe on the wall. No, there was no concern whatsoever. I think that they just were looking at it like, look, let's just try and put out this movie, make a couple of bucks, and then we'll take some of that money and put it into a movie we really want to make. I mean, you couldn't have planned it any better. Um, people wanted to see, well, what is this that, that I'm not allowed to see? At least our audience felt that way. I did wish, in retrospect, of course, like many others, that they would have advertised it at Halloween rather than Christmas, because then it would have fallen into, oh, it's just a Halloween horror film, perhaps. I know it was Santa, so that would have got some backlash. But to, to advertise the film coming out in all theaters around Christmas time, you know... Maybe in retrospect, they would have done that a little different. Since the ads ran during a football game on a Saturday afternoon and also during other Saturday afternoon family programs such as Little House on the Prairie and Three's Company, the shocking trailer reached far more children than the typical ad for a horror movie at the time. Accusing TriStar of ruining Christmas for their children, two Milwaukee moms started a group, Citizens Against Movie Madness. This group led opening day protests of the film in several Milwaukee theaters with other large protests also taking place in theaters in Brooklyn. New York, and Billings, Montana, among other cities. You probably know the the backstory of uh, the release of the show. TriStar releases the show. It's an instant success. I mean, wrapped around the block first night. Uh, But also, mothers started uh, picketing the thing, saying uh, TriStar is uh, doing away with Santa Claus, or, or, you know, destroying the image of Santa Claus, or scaring kids with Santa Claus, or you know, whatever it was of the time, and uh, that was 20 years ago or more, so I don't exactly remember. And by then, you know how you are as a director. 
you live with the thing, you go cut it for two months and, and you get it done and send it off to the studio and you're on to the next one. And the first thing I hear, press is calling me going, what do you think about this controversy? And I go, what controversy? Right. Uh, didn't even know the show had broken because I'm on location on another show sure. down in uh, uh, Big Spring, Texas by then. co-host Brandon Hahn on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mr. Hahn Comedy. Myself on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Jocelyn Sharp, and Sylvia Alvarado on Twitter and Instagram at It's The Sylvia. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Rise to Offend, and on Instagram at Rise to Offend Official. And make sure to listen to us every Monday on the Metal Sucks podcast on MetalSucks.net. Email us, comments, questions, errors we may have made, or any figure you would like us to cover at RiseToOffend at gmail.com. Discover the film legacy, Silent Night, Deadly Night. View the interviews on YouTube and discover all the horror films in the slasher and giallo genres and do not support the Green Bay Packers or their fans. All content on this show is copyrighted by its owners. Thank you all so much for the reviews on iTunes. These five-star reviews help us grow, and it is all we ask of you guys. Please, if you listen to the show and appreciate all the hard work behind it, review the show on iTunes. It truly means the world to us that you take the time to listen and you take the time to leave us a review. Next week, we will do part two of two on Silent Night, Deadly Night. Until next week, repeat offenders, RTO Podcast, signing off.